Hey, are y'all ready to advent with me? I don't think that's a verb. Forgive me. Let's advent together. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're actually going to be in 1 Peter. That's going to be the passage that lifts most of the heavy weight. We're going to be all over the Bible today, but 1 Peter is going to be where you're going to want to open up and sit for a little bit. I'm going to read to you when we start, though, from Luke 2. While you turn to 1 Peter, not to confuse you, I'm going to read from Luke 2. This will be up on the screen. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. It's a beautiful word. This is what's going to kick off our Advent season. It says, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Okay, listen, if it feels like we've spent a lot of time in some of the more ancient and traditional directions as a church in the last few months, it's because we have. We spent about a dozen weeks slow walking through the Apostles' Creed, which is an ancient and traditional and steadfast creed. We've enjoyed that. And here in the last several weeks, we have ended every gathering with a sung doxology, which is a very traditional way to finish a, a service. Here's one thing I'm learning as a, a leader of a church, and not just our church leadership here learning this, but church leadership teams all across the country. And that is that as younger generations, Generation Z, Generation Alpha, I'm Generation, raise your hand if you're Generation X, just so I know who I'm talking to. Like six of us. Okay, so everybody else, raise your hand if you're Generation Z, Alpha, or Millennial. I just got to know. Yep, okay, that's what I thought. So from what I understand, and I have to read this because it's not intuitive to me, is that the younger the generations get as they wash into the local church, the more comfort and connection they feel to the historicity of the church, ancient things, traditional things, right? I find that fascinating. It's odd to me because Generation X, the six of you that are also with me, Generation X, the word traditional is a four-letter word, Meaning that if there is a traditional service and a contemporary service, well, that's not even a decision that you need to make. You obviously go to the contemporary ones. You can wear jeans and listen to Cademan's Call and stuff like that. You don't go to the traditional one because that's where dorks go. But not so with my kids and my kids' kids. That's a space that they grow and grow quickly. Again, I find this fascinating. So what we felt as a church is maybe to tackle Advent from a more traditional and ancient direction just to cap off the year. There's a lot of different ways you can do Advent. What we're going to do for the next four weeks is do it the way it has been done from days long ago, right? And, and when I say Advent, even that word might be new to some of you. All it means is arrival, an anticipated arrival. But in ancient times, when Advent was still fairly new, you would see different color candles lit on different days to celebrate and maybe kind of emphasize different themes like peace, love, joy, hope, which is what we're going to talk about just for a little bit today. And I'm glad I get to be the one to talk about hope because I think some of you need hope badly. I think all of us need hope more than we realize, right? Here's the big question I want all of us to be able to answer by the end of the day. What would it take 
for you to be better tomorrow than you are today? What would it take for tomorrow to just be a better day than today is? What would need to be fixed? What would need to change? What would need to be added or taken away? See, what I love about this passage we started with in Luke is that these angels made a declaration. We all heard it, and it sounded pretty basic. It sounded very Christmassy. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And with this declaration, all the waiting stopped. There was waiting, and it ended there. So many people had been eagerly anticipating and waiting for God to make their tomorrow better than today, for him to enter the picture. For, for him to enter their monotony, their pain, their boredom. They hung on the prophecies of days of old, hundreds of years earlier. So many. One of them would be Simeon in Luke 2. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. And what was he doing? Waiting. Waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he wasn't alone. Anna was there as well. Anna, just a few verses later, says, And coming up at that very hour, she, Anna, began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were what? Waiting. Waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Well, I am fascinated by people that were waiting. But I resonate a little bit more with the people who probably quit waiting. I resonate with just giving up hope. It's so easy to give up hope. I mean, for every Simeon and Anna, there were people that were living at that time who were starting to relocate their hope and anchor it in things of the world. Move it from the vertical to the horizontal. And there's plenty of things to choose from, right? There's just people that would say, just like you and I, God is not making my tomorrow brighter, but I think that shiny thing will. That person will. My career will. My retirement will. My money, something, something will bring me a satisfied soul. But apparently God is not for me and I'm tired, tired of hanging my hope on him. Now, these aren't things we would say out loud, right? But don't we exhibit it with the small decisions we make, how we grieve, what we, what we cry about, what makes us angry? Listen, I think we can all struggle to hold on to hope when we're waiting. Hope is slippery, isn't it? It's elusive. And we also can move our hopes in horizontal directions, just attaching it to anything that this world promises will give you a satisfied soul. And there's so many things, right? You know, the pain of waiting for a fulfilled life, the pain of waiting and the struggle to hold on to hope, it reminds me of what musicians call the minor key. Some of you, if you're a musician or you're artistic, you, you already know what I'm talking about, right? I grew up a musician. Some of you didn't know that. I did. I grew up a musician, but I stunk at music theory. That's where all the smart kids went. I didn't understand it because you might not have known this. There's a lot of math in music. So once they start talking about fractional chord progressions, I just wanted to go outside and yell at birds, right? Because I felt so stupid being around there. And some of you, 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 you understand music theory, and I'm super impressed by you. But something even I learned as an ape when it was, came to theory is that when music is composed and delivered in a minor key, it's like a lever to our emotions. It, it actually makes you feel a little melancholy. It, it makes you feel nostalgic, sadly nostalgic. It, it actually makes you feel suppressed. It's fascinating, the power of music in the minor key. Even non-musicians can differentiate 
a, a piece that isn't a major key or a minor key. Here's proof, right? Journey, their song, Don't Stop Believing. Think about it. Major key. You already knew that, right? Major key. And you're welcome, by the way. You'll be singing that all day, I promise, right? I've been singing it all week in my head. And in your head, you're pumping your fist, you're driving the Trans Am, the windows are down. Don't stop believing. It's a major key. Johnny Cash, the song Hurt, A minor. I mean, he's the man in black, right? He makes big use of the minor key. So does Adele, Coldplay. They make major use of minor keys, and that's what makes you want to eat a tub of ice cream and look at old high school pictures, right? That's the power of music. And anthropologists and sociologists have done some solid work researching the power of the minor key. And what they have found is that it it can even make you sad. It can affect your emotions across language barriers. You don't even need to speak the language. Hey, you don't even need words, which is how movie directors use it at certain key times as a backtrack behind a moment to make you feel a certain way about a character or about a moment. It's manipulating you and me, and we're falling for it. It's the minor key. It's brilliant, really. Minor keys do one thing really well. They create tension. They hold tension. And you wait for what's called a major lift, some sort of a change to a major key. There's actually a song, incidentally, Leonard Cohen's famous song, Hallelujah, which is not Christian. He just hijacks Christian words and Christian themes. Some of you already knew that. But in this song, he mentions this very thing. This, and by the way, that song's in the minor key too. Probably didn't have to say that. But he says this. He says, it goes like this. The fourth, the fifth, the minor falls, the major lifts. He's talking about this. The emotional effect of these keys of music. Now, here's, here's why this matters today. Why did I take you all through that tour? This is why it matters. Our lives are lived in major keys and minor keys, aren't they? When we feel it, the minor falls and we wait for the major lift and sometimes it's just not coming. There's no major lift for us. We're stuck in the waiting room, holding on to hope, but barely holding on to hope. Listen, I know many of you well enough to know you feel like you are stuck and rusting out in the minor key right now. So when, whenever Solomon says in Proverbs 13 that a hope deferred makes the heart, you knew it. Because you've had sick hearts. Some of you, you have sick hearts today. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe not in all the areas of your life, which is why you were able to come here with a smile and greet people. But all it would take is just a small phrase, a picture, a memory, something. And you shift, don't you? And and listen, you might might actually know all of the theology, the right doctrine to say. You might know the right truths and believe them, but isn't it hard to enjoy them, to embrace them, to apply them to your life? Oh, sick hearts. Listen, you might understand this Advent story much more than you realize because it's the story of Jesus arriving, adventing. He's arriving at a scene where many were living in the minor key and waiting for a major lift. They needed change. When the first advent came, it found people waiting, longing, pining, rehearsing, waiting, regretting, half hoping, half abandoning hope, waiting some more. Hope was slippery. It was elusive. The major lift of all human history is God coming as man and he will come again. 
the two advents. There, there are two advents in human history. He does come, baby in a manger. We celebrate it every year. He will come again as a prince and a general on a white horse to collect his family. Two advents. They don't make sense one without the other. And by this, you and I have hope. Hope. Hope in tomorrow. Hope in God. Now listen, we have two problems with hope. How you and I interact with hope. All right? One is that hope makes a lot of sense in the Hebrew language. It's got nuance to it. Even Greek, like the, the spoken Greek, the common Greek, there's nuance. It's a beautiful, fragile word. It can mean different things. At different. In English, we do blunt force trauma to the word hope, like we do a lot of words, right? It just means what it, it, means, what it means. I say hope, you all know what I mean because we only have one way of looking at it. This last Monday, I was thinking about this this morning. This last Monday, I caught myself in the parking garage underneath the Kroger in the fort Late at night, jump-starting my daughter's cruddy car, right? That car is the worst decision I've ever made in my entire life on this planet. So here we are trying to stay warm in my truck, just jumper cords going all the way to her car. And she looks at me, she goes, Dad, is this going to work? I hope so. Hope. I hope so. Because if it doesn't, I start YouTubing things, right? And and I'm only going to do that for about six minutes, and then I'm calling a tow truck. That's it, right? But now listen, that's not, an um, that's not an unbiblical use of the word hope. It's just a non-biblical use of the word hope, right? All I mean and all you mean, whenever we say I hope for something, we're asking for circumstances in the future to make our situation better, right? I hope the Vols win more than 10 games next year, right? But I would need circumstances to work out. We need good players, we need good coaches, we need better refs. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. We need better refs, right? It's a rough year for us this year. I'm just going to say it publicly. <laughs> but I hope. That's, that's just a non-biblical way. A biblical way of looking at hope, specifically when we're talking about the advent of God, it has nothing to do with believing in circumstances. Having, it's a person. We have hope in a person. Not a bunch of variables spinning around that hopefully they line up. It's a big difference. A big difference. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. The second thing that we can kind of get jumbly with when it comes to the idea of hope is we can mistake it with faith. Right? Now, they're very similar, which is why we jumble them up. Right? You see, faith, what it does is it looks backwards. The promises that God has made and really the character of God. It's not just the fact that God has made promises. He's just a promise maker and a promise keeper right? That's looking back. Whereas hope is a subset of faith. It is a kind of faith, but it is future oriented. It's future located, anchored tomorrow, not today. Now listen, nobody is going to tackle you for getting these mixed up. I'm just simply being accurate for the sake of accuracy today. But here's a couple statements that might make this more clear. I have faith that God has control of my current suffering. I have faith that he's invested in my situation. Why? I could look back. And the most suffering that has ever been suffered on a planet of suffering was Jesus on a cross. And God was invested in that. Oh, God was sovereign in that. God was highly in that moment, so he's also invested in mine. That's how faith, it, that's how faith works. The mechanics are, I look back and I apply it to my present. Hope is a little different. 
Hope says something like, I have hope that my suffering will one day end forever. See how it's future-oriented? One day it will end forever. Now, why should I have hope on that? Because Jesus rose from the grave. A stinger was removed from death, from decay. He conquered death. So I have a reason to have hope. Now, both faith and hope are anchored in God's promises and character. They both are. We have faith that God is present in our life today. We have hope that one day everything will change. Now, Peter believes this so much that he calls your hope and my hope a living hope. Real, verified, not like the dead hopes of the day. Now, this is where we're going to look at 1 Peter 1. Look at 1 Peter 1. This is going to be a helpful passage for us. I'm going to start in verse 3. We're going to go to verse 9. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance now, this is, this is so powerful how he describes this inheritance that you have. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. That's life in the minor key right there. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith and salvation of your souls. This is such a beautiful passage. Fact, your inheritance is bulletproof, and it's kept, guarded, can't be spoiled, can't be stolen. Here's why this matters. Here's how this works. It is okay for you to be perplexed with what's going on in your life. Perplex is like an anxiety mixed with the confusion, mixed with the frustration, mixed with pain. It's okay to be perplexed, but not in despair. Those aren't my words. Those are Paul's out of 2 Corinthians Perplexed, but not in despair. You could be sad, but not ruined, not undone. Why? Because our God has advented. He has arrived, faith, and he will advent again, hope, right? Two directions. Jesus will come a second time to collect you. He'll do so as a loving friend and a victorious general. Friends, that is our major lift Christmas is not good news without the second advent. It just doesn't even make sense without the second advent. Because without Jesus arriving again, we don't have a living hope. We have a dead hope. It's just like all the other hopes in the world. It's just like hoping that a car can get jumped. But this is where we struggle in the waiting room. Because it gets hard. Waiting gets hard for us. Hope gets slippery. We just don't always see Jesus' impending arrival. Not in our current situation, 
not in our forever situation. We don't see it. We think to ourselves, God is not arriving, and if God is not coming and God is not going to be here, then I have to find a surrogate, something, some vehicle to deliver a satisfied soul to me in this wretched place called life. And so we start hanging our hope on what? Not a person, circumstances, career, relationships, marriage, kids, you name it, you name it. Job and Job 8, stay where you're at, First Peter. But Job is having a conversation under strain. One of his friends, listen, if you don't know the story of Job, he has a few friends. They're those kinds of friends saying unhelpful things at unhelpful times, right? But, but some, of, some of what they said is true, right? Every once in a while, there'd be a little nugget of, okay, he's true, but he probably didn't have to say it like that. Job is full of that, right? Bildad, one of his friends, says this in chapter 8. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed. And then hear this. And his trust is a spider's web. That's fascinating. That's a fascinating picture for me. You see, the objects of our hopes in this world, they're not going to deliver a satisfied soul. They can't. They can't. This is what it looks like. There's nothing wrong with you hoping, hoping the way we use it, hoping for obedient kids. Nothing wrong with that. But when you stake your ultimate satisfaction to that, you might as well be putting all of your weight on a spider's web to hold you up. That's what Bill Dad is saying here. There's nothing wrong with hoping for a, a brilliant career, a successful marriage, great health. There is nothing wrong with hoping in these things. But if they complete you, then it's just leaning on a spider's web. That's what he's saying here. We can act like the godless when it comes to where we invest our hope. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians. He says this when he's talking to people, the church, and he, he doesn't want them to be dumb or ignorant about what happens when people die. That's what he's talking about. That's the context. But he says this, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, dead hope, worldly hope. Listen, when you have a living hope, it changes the way you grieve. It changes the way you look at death. It changes the way you look at everything. I mean, have you ever had a brother or sister in the Lord that they grieve through something? They're in some minor key. But it's like this world is all they've got. It's as if God doesn't even exist the way that they're handling themselves. It just feels like their, their response is an inappropriate response. They're grieving like the godless. Some spider web they were leaning on did not hold up their weight. Some idol did not deliver. Some person abandon them and they are coming unhinged. It's because their hopes were misplaced. You can see it. They can see it. These are things that we have to repent from. We don't just get up and dust ourselves off. We have to repent. Not for having a sad heart. Not even for having a sick heart. But for just being undone. Ruined. Because of something that we placed our hope in here in this world. Just a quick word to the ruined and the inconsolable. Every time you lean on a spider web and it gives way and you find yourself just not wanting to wake up another day, every single time that happens to you, hear me now, that's a kindness that God lets you see. God is being kind to you. You know what you deserve. It's the same thing I deserve. What we really deserve is for us to continue to trust in things that are never going to deliver and then just get ripped off over and over and over. And that's what we deserve. 
But what God does is he allows you to see. You've misplaced your hope. You've put it in dead hopes. I'm a living hope. And he's luring us back. He's drawing us back. He's asking us to relocate our hope from the dead things of this world to him. Stake your hope to him. Let this world go. Let it go. One of the passages that brings me the most perspective when I find myself in the waiting room, and I'm just tired of waiting, hope is, again, slippery, is Isaiah 25. There's a reason for it. Stay where you're at, but in Isaiah 25, 8, he says, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken... It will be said on that day, when it says it will be said on that day, this is what you and I will be saying together. We will be saying, behold, this is our God. We have, say it with me, waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is what I imagine whenever I read a passage like this. I imagine, and I talk about it all the time, a a place, a forever, where our senses just wake up Color, sound is as if sin never touched it before. We have a warmth we've never felt before, a hospitality we've never comprehended before. Laughter, laughter that is better than any laughter we have ever had. And I think when we are in that moment together, we will look back on the seasons today that we call minor key moments and we just won't look at them the same. We will have perspective. Passages like this, they get me there fast because, friends, I long for this day, a day where the waiting just ends and a life begins. But how do we live in the minor key today? How do we get there today, right? So if you're still in 1 Peter, go down, put your finger where we were reading, and then zoom down to verse 13. Peter says this, one verse, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, And being sober-minded, set your hope fully, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Place it all there, all the chips right there. We have to start with a mind and a heart that is prepared and sober with our hope set in the right place. There's two things I'm going to give you today, and then we're out of this sermon. The two things are going to be just quick applications of what this could look like. One of them is just be honest. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with the people around you. Some of you, you've got things that are trying to ruin your life right now. You feel a little bit ruined. Some things are gaining ground on you, in fact. Some spider webs have failed you. And what you need is honesty. Here's a picture of what honesty looks like. In Lamentations 3, I love this passage too. You could stay where you're at if you want, because I'm going to read this, and it's going to be up on the screen. It's pretty quick. This is the word. This is Jeremiah, by the way. He says, let me find it. No, wrong chapter. We almost went a totally different direction right there, right? I would have just kept going, but we're right back. Verse, three, <laughs> verse 16. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. Mmm. Don't know what that's about, but that sounds horrible, right? It made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, 
my wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But, and here's the pivot, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is a lament. It's just an honest admission of the pain of the waiting room, but it always pivots. A good lament pivots and finds itself in a moment of praise. We talk about this all the time. I've preached about it several times up here. We teach a class on how to write a lament. We, in fact, if you want to find the curriculum for it, it's on our website. You go to resources, pull it down, spiritual disciplines, and there's going to be a tab, how to write a lament. The reason I like lamenting so much is because it requires honesty. And not a fruitless honesty that's vapid and trails off into just what we call whining, inventing, just, just venting for the sake of venting. That's how the godless grieve. That's how they lament. Paul says we don't grieve like the godless. There's always going to be a pivot in a good lament. And in this lamentation, Jeremiah, he seems to have just about given up on hope. And then it's revived. The major lift. The major lift. Friends, your Bible is full of laments. You want to know why? Because we live in a very difficult place, right? And we don't always get a win. So be honest with it. Bring some honesty to it. And not just honesty with the situation you're in, but with the character and the promises of God. That's how you wrestle through these things. That's how you lead yourself through these difficult seasons. And not just yourself, but those around you. If we were to slap a communal grid on top of this, on how we use this application, not just for ourselves, but for the people around us, I mean, when you see a friend venting, let them get it out, let them work through it, and then help them, lead them. If they can't pivot, show them the way. Preach the gospel to their heart, the very seat of their hope, the contract of the hope that we have. Remind them that there's a day coming where the waiting ends, and their place is kept. Right? God wins. They win. You win. We win. You need to build friendships like this if you don't have them. As I described that, some of you, you don't have a friendship like this. Let me just say this. Pick up a trowel and build one because it's worth it. And it might take years to get it done. And I'm talking about a friendship where this is kind of normal, being this honest back and forth. You could traffic in this honesty without there being judgment on the table. I mean, one of the things I tell people, and I love this phrase, and the reason I love it so much is because it was told to me in a moment where I was lamenting, and then I caught myself stopping. I felt like my honesty was overstepping. I felt like for a moment, I'm being too honest in this moment. And somebody said to me, and I will say to you, right now there is no one to impress, and there is nothing to prove. That's all been done. I'm free. I'm free. Listen. Build friendships like that. And not, not even just, if we were to take the communal grid off, you could put a missional grid on top of this application as well. Some of you, you have friends that are far from Christ. You live next to them, you work down the hall from them. They trust the same spider webs over and over again, don't they? And it keeps giving way and they keep collapsing. And you've watched it. You've been the audience. Hey, start cashing in some of that relational credit that you've been building 
and just say. And some of you, you're here, you're like this, or you're watching and you're like this. You've been trusting in the same spider webs for a long time, haven't you? You keep doing the same thing. And you keep stepping in the same bear traps. The same horrible thing keeps happening over and over and over again, but you just keep going back. Don't you see that? Don't you see that? You know this. Listen, few things will lead people to consider Christ quite like seeing their own hopes dashed repeatedly over and over again. How do I know this? It's how I got saved. This is how I got saved. Be honest. That's the first one. Second one's quicker. Be patient. Romans 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. A few chapters earlier, Paul says to the same church, for, and this is in Romans 8, for in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope, is, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes and what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, why does Paul say this? Because we're impatient. We're impatient for God's intervention. Impatient for him to get involved in our trials. Impatient for him to just come back and finish everything. Hey, you want to know why patience is hard? Because it requires patience. Am I right? Zach Eswine has this great saying that I've always loved when it talks about that strange sweetness we find and that answerless ache that we have waiting. He says, patience says to your empty hands, God is here. Patience looks the worst in the face and says, God will not leave you. Patient hope, patient living hope, it serves you by reinforcing over and over again that your hope is not in this world. It's in a person. It's in a person. I think if we were to take this entire sermon and put it in a blender and pour it out, we get Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Friends, listen, when I I go through these passages and I start researching and praying on hope and scribbling stuff down and erasing it, scribbling more stuff. When I, when I work on something like this, there is so much room for me to repent. Not, not, just, not just for being impatient, not just for wanting relief, not, not just for venting and, and finding little things in this world to pin my hopes on, but actually a deeper repentance as well for letting my soul get crushed and ruined instead of just sad and perplexed, for not pivoting, for not trusting that God is who he says he is, for actually accusing God. God, you are not who you say you are. You're a liar. You said you, you said you were good. I don't feel like you're good right now. The accusation against God that provokes this sin in us, that needs to be repented for. That's much deeper repentance. And we're going to get the opportunity to do that here in a moment. There's also room for us to repent who are far from Christ. Not everybody here loves Jesus. I get that. Not everybody watching loves Jesus. I get that. I'm just going to repeat something to you that Bildad said. The hope of the godless shall perish. But here's the thing. You already know that. Or else you wouldn't be here. Or you wouldn't be watching. You wouldn't have made it this far. That's why you're here. You're hoping for more. You want a better tomorrow. I'm going to say what the angel said. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, even you. Imperfect you. Imperfect you is perfect for the gospel. Perfect for the gospel. 
Listen, if you believe that God is our living hope, drawing us above all the puny, pseudo-Jesus, half-delivering, no-good hopes of this world, the dead hopes, if you believe that, and I mean believe it with every fiber of your being, every fiber of your soul, if you believe that and you confess it with your mouth, God is faithful. God is faithful. We could actually join Moses, and this is Psalm 39. I'm going to read it to you. He's only written a few psalms. This is one of them. Verse 7, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? What do I wait? My hope is in you. This is the confession of the heart. It's the confession of a heart that God has ruined, he's broken, and he's given you a heart of flesh, and you can respond where you didn't used to be able to respond. Listen, if that's you today, today's a great day for you. If God is breaking you today, he's changing your heart today, I want to talk to you today. Just find me. I want to pray with you. I want to celebrate with you today if God is changing your heart. If you have questions about that today, I want to be helpful for you. Don't leave until you find me. Because there is a pivot, a major lift waiting for you.